I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was, rec as he was reclining at the at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignant, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body forehead, beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him, betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thank you, Luke. All right, so welcome again to Mark chapter 14. Marhaba bikum, yani ahlan wa sahlan, gulu fi maghrib marhaba bikum, farhanin bi khudurkum ma'ana min jadid. I don't know if you can help them or also we could translate. Um, um, Mark chapter 14. We've arrived here starting in chapter 1, speaking about the gospel of, God, of Jesus, the Son of God. There are certain moments in life when it's not time to be thrifty. I don't know if you have learned this yet, if you're very old and you've experienced any anniversaries, then you know that there are times that it's not appropriate to be stingy or thrifty. Problem for me, full self-disclosure, is I am from a very stingy lineage. We are a stingy group of people, the Bayshore people, and I was raised going out to eat practically once a year on vacation. I never remember getting anything but the free water in the whole, all of my years growing up. And if we did, it was because my grandmother gave us those McDonald's bucks. I don't know if you guys got those, a little booklet, $5 of McDonald's bucks when you were kids. Got that for Christmas and we could get anything we wanted on the McDonald's menu for $5. So directly, I started working at 14 and I was paying for the Christian school myself, never had any money left over, went straight from high school to college, and in college um, I was paying for all of that myself while playing soccer and going to school. So I was working 30 hours a week while going to school 
and I was eating, there was a McDonald's near us, you're going to hear that as a theme here, there was a McDonald's in Knoxville, Tennessee that sold 35 cent hamburgers on Wednesdays. So I would go to McDonald's and get 20 hamburgers and put 18 of them in the freezer and have two or three every meal, and that's how I survived college. Uh, One week, I had to arrive at college to work my job uh, before the um, college cafeteria opened, and so I lived at my work. I worked at the Super 8. It was quite a prestigious place to work. And I lived on $10 for one week. I survived on $10. I don't know if you guys have ever, if you have a record, I'd love to hear it. The least you've survived a week on. Maybe Seth is the only person in the room who could beat me. But um, we bought, I found free bread. I got condiments from the, from the restaurants. And when I graduated college, I graduated with no bills and nothing in the bank. Praise the Lord. So that was, at that time, I also got married. So I had never bought myself a piece of clothing before, and I had never spent hardly any money. And so I had quite the habit of not spending money. I remember um, a few years after we were married, I took my wife on a date. And I was only used to the prices of the restaurants that I was used to, right? But we went to a fish restaurant, and the Bayshore family doesn't go to fish restaurants because you you can't get cheap food at fish restaurants. So I took her to a fish restaurant. Uh, It was either our anniversary or Valentine's Day. It was in Rabat in Morocco in the capital. And I saw the prices, and I thought, oh, man, I'm going to have to adjust here somewhere. So I made sure to get water, and I said, I'm not very hungry. You get whatever you want. I'll just get an appetizer. She let me know on that date that if it's going to be that way, she doesn't want to eat here. And I was like, why? You could eat whatever you want. I'll just eat an appetizer. And she told me, basically, in other words, now is not the time to be stingy, Bayshore. And I said, okay. And I learned from that moment that there are times in life that we should be extravagant. This woman in our story in Mark 14 learned to be, she, she was, gave an extravagant gift to Jesus, one that the uh, disciples of Jesus said was a waste. And we're going to talk about how the extravagant gift of God for us in Christ frees us to live extravagantly. And we have three points because the Bible is given to us in three points. Amen. Mary's alabaster flask, the real alabaster flask, and your alabaster flask. So starting the first point about Mary's alabaster flask is that there is freedom and real joy for those in a secure relationship with Jesus. There is slavery for those like Judas who are using Jesus, and we're going to look at that. So this is Wednesday of the Holy Week. Jesus came into Jerusalem on Sunday riding a donkey, the king who's entered into the capital of his kingdom. And he's been received by the masses, but he's been criticized, rejected by the religious rulers. And we see here in the first couple verses that they were preparing a plot 
to kill him. This plot began in Mark 3, if you remember, back in maybe June of last year. We went through Mark 3, and it says that he, he looked around them with anger. This is speaking of Jesus looking at the Pharisees and the scribes, grieved at their hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out his hand and was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. So since chapter 3 of Mark, they had been planning and wanting to seek an opportunity to kill Jesus. In chapter 14 in Jerusalem, the plot comes to real actual plans with dates and opportunities. And Jesus, having withdrawn himself while he was training and teaching his disciples, now brings himself as that lamb to a sacrifice in Jerusalem, knowing what's awaiting him. If you remember, his disciples, John and James, said, Lord, don't go to Jerusalem because you know what will happen. And he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. So here he's in Jerusalem. He withdraws to the city of Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem every evening. And he's in Bethany two days before his arrest. And it was in Bethany that this story takes place. The Bible says in verse 3, Mark writes that it was in the house of Simon the leper. We, can, we don't know much about Simon the leper except that he was not leprous anymore. Jesus had evidently healed him of leprosy because you don't hang out in the house of a leper. And as he was reclining at the table, and uh, this was the way they would eat then they had a short table and they would lay around it rather than sit at chairs like we do. So he was reclining at the table and a woman came to him. Now this woman, the Gospel of John tells us, was most likely Mary, the mother or the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Each of the Gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the story from their perspective. So this is a big deal on the way to the cross. John is the only one who tells us that it was Mary. And so this woman was Mary. It's very important that we know her experience with Jesus. She was one of those rare people who had experienced the resurrection before Jesus resurrected. Jesus gave some front row glimpses to the resurrection when he would raise people from the dead. Among those was Lazarus. And Lazarus, the brother of Mary, had been in the tomb for three days when Jesus finally arrived to their town. And Martha, Jesus's, uh, Mary's sister, was the one who had this very important conversation with Jesus where Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And then he proved it by bringing Lazarus out of the tomb. And so this Mary is most likely the one who comes to Jesus in Bethany with this flask of ointment. So a little bit about the alabaster flask. It was a type of stone, soft stone called alabaster that was quarried from India. And it had in it, it was, it was often very beautifully carved, 
and um, the, the Egyptians used them as well, and they were just a very expensive thing. And the nard, also called spikenard, was a type of ointment that was only from a root from Nepal. So it had to travel a long way to get where it was. They say that it was very costly. Historians tell us that it cost around one year's wage for the average worker. So if we translate that into our day, what does the average blue-collar worker make today? 40, 50, 60,000, depending on the union that he's involved in. So somewhere between 40 and $60,000. The difference, however, was that we have really no form of reference to understand the lack of discretionary income that they had back then to save up for something like that. So they had almost no discretionary income. So you can imagine that this one year's wages was, no, was a lifetime of savings. And in fact, it was probably something passed down from one generation to another in times of emergency that you could possibly sell it in, in case there was absolutely no other option. Then you have this thing to sell. Banks weren't quite a very uh, popular thing back then. So she takes this alabaster flask, the Bible says in verse 3, and she breaks it. These, these stone flasks were made and sealed to where you can't get it a drop at a time just to go out on the town in Jerusalem. But it was, you broke it and that was it. You had to use it right then. And she breaks it and pours it on the head of Jesus. What we see about this woman, I think, a few things, is that she had experienced the resurrection, and she had experienced such relationship with Jesus and her family. Jesus had a very special relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, almost like he was adopted into their own family, and in reality, he was adopting them to give us a picture of what his relationship looks like with people that enter into his family. And so in this relationship with Jesus, she was free of worry about her future. She takes this one very costly thing, one-time use, without calculating, without concern for when she might need that later, or about her children or her grandchildren that she might pass it to, and she recognized the importance of that moment before the cross, and she breaks it and pours it on Jesus' head. She was free of worthy, worry, and she was completely trusting in Jesus. The, also, the interesting thing is that she was willing to be criticized. Look what it says here in verse 4. It says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Mark says some, so it's plural, but others of the gospel writers point out that Judas was the one leading that criticism, and the reason that he was leading it is because he loved money. And so we see that they scolded. It means they got really bossy with her, and what they, they, told, they, they told her she shouldn't have done that. They shamed her in front of everybody, made her feel potentially bad for having done that, and they said this, they had, a very, they had a very spiritual reason. They said, why was the ointment wasted like that? They called it a waste. They said, 
Um, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to focus with me on that word wasted. He said it was wasted. This word wasted is a word apoleia, or however you say that in Greek. And it was interesting as I looked up all of the times that word wasted is used in the Bible, that same word apoleia, and one of them is in John 17, 12. This was the next day after this occurred, Jesus was praying to his father in what we call the high priestly prayer. And Jesus was praying for his disciples, those same people that had criticized her. And he said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those thou gavest me, I kept them, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of perdition was Judas. The word for perdition is loss. It means wasted. It's the exact same word. So this word that Judas used to criticize this woman for her waste, pouring out this nard on the head of Jesus, was in fact his very title for his life, a son of waste, that his whole life was wasted. So as he was scolding Mary, Jesus turned to him in verse 6 and said, and I imagine in a harsh tone. I like to think of it as a harsh tone. Leave her alone. I like that. I like that our Jesus is not just always the sweet version, but he scolded them back, shamed them into place. They embarrassed her, then he embarrassed them, and embarrassment was the last straw for Judas. You jump down to verse 10. It says that Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. We can't help but notice the transactions that are going on. This woman breaking this flask without concern for its cost. Yet Judas looks for how he can betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Um, experts tell us that 30 pieces of silver in those days, one piece of silver was the common wage for a day worker per day. So this was roughly one and a half months, let's say one and one week worth of work. They've put the actual value today, I, the lowest number I could find was 250 $250. The highest I could find was $3,000. I'm going to say it's probably closer to $3,000 because they bought a piece of property with that, that money after he threw it down on the temple floor after the arrest and, and, the, uh, and the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's say it was $3,000. Judas saw that flask being broken, $50,000 in value, let's say. And that's the whole reason he was there, was to get from Jesus. And he's seeing it wasted. And it was, the, it was the last straw for him. And he went and he sold our Messiah. Judas has a problem that I think our culture today has, is he was in a transactional relationship with Jesus. But he didn't say that in the front end. But he was in a transactional relationship I want to give you a definition for a transactional relationship. Transactional relationships are built on the expectation for reciprocation. 
Both individuals are concerned with how they will benefit. Individuals are self-serving, making sure they get as much as they can from the relationship for a set amount of work in return. So Judas came into the relationship with Jesus for that thought, what am I going to gain here? And he stayed in that relationship for three years. I've, had, I've experienced this uh, with, I, very vividly with one young man in North Africa who came to Christ. I baptized him, discipled him. He started helping me baptize other people. At one point, when he realized I wasn't giving him a job, he got upset and angry and started bad-mouthing, not just me, but all the other believers. And one thing that he said, which gave me a, a view into his heart, is he said, what did I get out of the two years I spent with them? Not one dirham, which is the type of money they used in Morocco. I knew from that phrase that though he hadn't said it out loud, for the two years that I had known him and that I had counted him as a brother, he was in a transactional relationship with me. And when he didn't get what he expected, he sold, he sold all that he could, and he cut his losses. And that's what Judas was doing. Worship, then, is that thing that you're really serving. So for Judas, he was following Jesus, but he was worshiping money. He was worshiping his things and what he could get out of it. Many people today are following Jesus, but they're worshiping some reason that they're with Jesus. Maybe you think that coming to church will give you a happy home and a faithful spouse and children that are obedient to you and maybe coming to church will give you whatever it is. If there's something behind the reason that you're following Jesus, then that thing is the actual focus of worship. Mary, by contrast, was not in a transactional relationship with Jesus. How do we know that in our society today, we have a problem with transactional relationships. Well, on our vertical level to God, uh, you hear this all the time. I, I told you guys this a few months ago, if you remember, I was at Harbor Freight one time and I helped a lady to, to take a toolbox to her car because the people at Harbor Freight were too busy and couldn't help her. And one of the workers at Harbor Freight said, was so impressed by my altruism that she said, God's really going to reward you for this. And I told her, I was taken aback by that phrase, and I said, well, God has already rewarded me. And we're, we're going to talk about the difference between gospel living and transactional, but this is the kind of idea we have of God. When I do something for him, he needs to be giving it back to me. I'll give him a set amount of time, but he needs to make it happen. You know, um, Judas had given it three years. In our relationships, we, we don't treat God differently than we understand people. We also have in our horizontal relationships a problem in our culture with transactional relationships. Divorce is still around 50%. I think that's one view of the shift in our culture in the 60s and 70s toward um, transactional relationships. One in four adults are estranged from someone in their family. 25% or one in four people are estranged from their fathers. Uh, I don't think this was very typical of, the, of past generations and traditional cultures. In our very modern culture, you can divorce your parents. 
We're in, a, we're in this, this relationship, even with our own parents and family, of if they're not doing it for me, if they're not helping me, if they're not giving me what I expect and what I want, then I'm cutting them off because this is transactional, even with our own parents in our generation. So the problem is that they, the experts have traced shame, grief, and guilt to these broken relationships. They find that in the 6% of people that are estranged from their mothers and 25% that are estranged from their fathers, it's not just an emotionally neutral thing. The people that are estranged from these family members count it, uh, report much higher levels of shame, grief, and guilt than people who are not estranged. We see this in the life of Judas, that his, his love and worship for things and for himself and for money was actually the thing that broke him and caused him to kill himself. Now, suicide was not a very common thing back then, as we might find it today, but it was the end of Judas. So, I'll give you a little illustration about how, though, Mary could have been like Judas, but was transformed into someone who was in a gospel relationship with Jesus. And we're going to unpack that when we talk about the real alabaster flask. But two of the relationships in this world, I want to encourage you if, you, if you sense in yourself that you're impacted a lot by these transactional thoughts about other people, that there are two institutions in the world that God gives us that are meant to fight against that human tendency. One is marriage, that one man and one woman would tie themselves together, giving a ring and promising for the rest of my life, no matter what you tell me about you, and no matter what I tell you about me, we're going to stay together, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Happy Valentine's Day. It's coming up soon. Marriage is that institution that God gave us that is of all relationships a lifelong relationship not built on transactional, you give for me, then I'll give for you, and if you don't, then you're out. Um, but our human tendency is to be transactional. A second institution is the church. Joe read for us our church covenant. A covenant means that we commit to one another, even the ones that drive us crazy, even the church members that I would prefer not to hang out with or that I find to be too broken that cause me a lot of pain or cause me a lot of problems. The church covenant says we are committed to one another, to one another's health, and it may cost me and, and it may cost you, but we're committed to one another. Those two institutions are the things that people aren't belonging to anymore, marriage and church. All the other institutions, you can take them or leave them, the clubs and the sports and all of these things. You can come and then you can go, but marriage and church are supposed to be covenants. That's not to say that you should be manipulated into staying in a very unhealthy church. I'm talking about a healthy church where they seek to grow in God's Word and to love one another. It is a good thing for us to not be transactional with one another, to serve one another. So then, how can we experience this life-saving transformation from a transactional relationship into this relationship that Mary 
had with Jesus? The answer is the real alabaster flask. That alabaster flask, that's a hard thing to say, alabaster flax. The alabaster flask that Mary broke pointed to something. Look what Jesus said here after he scolded the disciples. He said, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. And look what he says here in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. The broken alabaster flask pointed to the real alabaster flask, that costly uh, body of Christ, like that alabaster flask, that came from far away, that carried in it not an ointment of great price, but the very precious blood of Christ that was broken for us. That woman's alabaster flask pointed to two things. Jesus said it's a beautiful thing she's done. What made it beautiful? First of all, she did what she could. She took what she had, noticing the time that she was in. She, I think, understood more than the disciples of Jesus that Jesus was about to go to the cross. They didn't seem to get it through their heads, but she did. Noticing that moment that she was in, she took what she had, and she became part of the gospel drama leading up to the cross. Her sacrifice became part of that prophecy. Because who anoints a person's body for burial when they're still alive? Nobody does that. You anoint people's body. Well, we don't do it at all. We have people who do that for a profession now, embalmers. But in those days, the family members, the very closest of family members, would take the ointment with the dead body and cover the head and cover the body with this ointment to preserve the, the body as long as it could in the grave. She did it before he died as a prophecy leading up to his death. She had a part in our faith. The, one of the things that gives me such a grounding in the cross of Jesus is that the prophecies of the old covenant and then the things that Jesus said leading up to his cross, it didn't take him by surprise. He planned it. The Father in heaven planned it from the beginning. And this woman knew it and showed it in breaking this flask and pouring it on him, preparing him for his burial. She gave us a visual that he is going to die. And Jesus didn't say, come do that to me. She of her own will came forward and did that, giving us prophecy. So why did this body need to be broken and why did this blood need to be shed? There's two reasons if you look, if, if you look with me. Um, these are the two questions. This has to do with the alabaster box, right? The body and the blood. Quickly, why do we need the body of Christ broken, and why do we need his blood shed? I've just given you a couple verses. So the first one, answer of why his alabaster flask, why the body of Jesus had to be broken. Isaiah 53, 4 and 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on his body, that is, the iniquity of us all. So it was he who was stricken and smitten by God. As this woman broke that flask, it was picturing the father breaking the son for you and for me, for our iniquities. And why did his blood need to be spilled from that precious body? Alex can help me with that. Romans 5, 9 says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It was the blood of Christ spilled out that was our justification and our propitiation, protecting us from the wrath of God that we deserve. We deserve our blood to be spilled. The life is in the blood, and the wages of sin is death. So the poured out blood of Jesus was that thing that paid our debt. First Peter said this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. So with his blood, he justifies us. With his blood, he propitiates for the wrath of God upon our sin. And with the blood of Jesus, it says here that he buys us back or redeems us, not with the blood of lambs, but with his precious blood. So this flask was not the real flask. It was pointing to the body and the blood of Jesus. So in verse 8, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this broken flask of Mary points to the broken body of Christ, but he looks past his broken body in verse 9. And he says, that's only the beginning. The gospel is going to be preached in the whole world. Where is good news with, with just the broken body and blood of Christ? There is none. He's pointing to the resurrection, that this broken flask is going to be put back together. It's going to overcome the breaking because it was sinless. It is the gospel, the good news that's going to be proclaimed. Now, I've had, we've asked this question recently to some of our young people, and I think it's very important that every one of them and every one of us can clearly understand and explain what this means, the gospel. What is the gospel? We're asking people, young people in our church who wanted to be baptized. I think that Michaela and Miriam will remember this. We asked them that question, what is the gospel? And they gave us an answer. I want to give you an answer for what the gospel is, because this is not something that we don't, none of us have our own gospel. We have one gospel, and it's God's gospel to us through Christ, and this is it. What is the gospel? It's the good news that God has come near to us in Christ to take our punishment on himself and give us life in his resurrection. This is available to anyone who hears and receives this news by repentance and faith. Now, that might seem like a mouthful, but really, it's not too difficult. The good news of Jesus is that he came to us in Jesus, and by his blood and by his body, he paid our debt and rose again, conquering death. And for all of those who will believe it and receive it, then they can have life in his name. That's the good news. It's not a list of rules. It's not a religion to belong to. 
It's not rituals that you perform. It's nothing that you gain by your work. In fact, it is only God's work for us, and that's why it's called good news. This is what the gospel is. So, this gospel is the thing that Mary experienced that transformed her from being like Judas to, being, to having a, trans, a gospel transformation on the inside to where she didn't any longer live for herself and she had no fear about the future. She was completely free of worry. While Judas, on the other hand, was dominated by the worship of money and a fear that he would not have enough, so much that he, that he sold Jesus. So how does this gospel transformation happen in you and me? I made a little, um, what do you call that? What you, table. I made a table for all the engineers here that shows you some, some ways, and I think you could flesh this out with a bunch more, but I just, I'm giving you a few here. A religious transaction is what Judas had with Jesus, and that is he was empty and he was looking to be filled with something other than Jesus. But Mary was filled and looking for where to overflow. She'd experienced the resurrection and the resurrection of his, his, her brother. She had experienced relationship with God through Christ as he made her, her family his family. And as she overflowed with that, she was able to pour out on others. Here's another thing. Religious transaction is calculating. Gospel transformation is uncalculating. So Judas was keeping track. It's been three years. 30, let's say 30 pieces of silver is not a good deal for three years. But it's better than nothing. I'm going for it. And he sold Jesus. He was calculating with really bad math. This woman was not at all calculating what it cost for her. She was overflowing with what God had already filled her up with. I'll give you a short illustration. Um, I've been, having, I've been inviting pastors from Dearborn to my house once a month to have lunch together and to pray together. And uh, the second to last time I did it, I ordered food from Beirut Nights, and it cost around 90 bucks. And I told all the pastors, there's like six of them, I said, well, this is about, I don't remember the number, it's like 15 or $18 per person, so you could put, send it to me by Venmo or PayPal or cash or whatever. And, and it got really awkward. Like, taking money from people, like, 18 bucks here, you know, he's still there. I don't have $2, and I was like, ugh. The next time I did it, I said, you know what, I'm just going to buy this food for them. In fact, when I did that, some of them left my house and didn't pay me. I won't tell Pastor Dave which one. It definitely wasn't Pastor Allen. He's the first one trying to pay me. But they forgot, or they just like, I don't have cash. Who has cash, especially specific numbers? They're all good men. I'm just saying that I didn't recoup all the money. And the second time I did it, I, said, I thought, this is silly. We're all servants of Jesus. I'm just going to buy it. And so I won't even mention it to them. And so they started asking me after the meal, how much do I owe you? And I said, don't worry about it. I'm paying for it. Love you guys. They all paid me $80 each. Like one of them said, well, I just got, Alan said, I just got an $80 tip from a client. I didn't know what that was for. Here it is. Here's it. And I didn't tell them it cost $80. It was like $90. Another one said, I want to pay for it with my church. They all just, they all just started overflowing with giving. Where when I told them, hey, this is the transaction. This is how much it was. That's what I got was transactional relationship. When I said, hey, this is the food. Love you. Eat it. Don't give it back to me. I got more than I could handle. 
So it's just a small illustration or my own little experiment about how the difference between transactional or a calculating relationship and one that does not calculate. Too often in our marriages we're calculating, right? We're keeping track of what the other person owes us and what they've done and what they, uh, you know, and how much I've done. And, you know, we say, would you do this for me because I've done that for you or things like this. But a gospel transformation doesn't calculate. Something else is an insecure relationship. So Judas had an insecure relationship. He had not experienced he had, though he lived with Jesus for three years, he had not experienced the relationship of family that Mary had. Mary had experienced, she was completely secure in her relationship. If you have Jesus as a brother and God as your father, are you really concerned when you, sac- when you break that flask that he's not going to take care of you? Mary had a secure relationship. And this is some, one thing that, the, that psychologists say that uh, Christian psychologists in particular that help people to grow is going from these insecure relationships that we have growing up with our parents where we don't experience potentially the love that some of you had great parents but if you if you lacked some affection or you lacked certain things we have we build these insecure relationships with people the gospel trans can with time have the power to transform and repair those relationships where God is replaced as our Heavenly Father. I was reading a, a very interesting book by an unbelieving psychologist who does not believe in God, and she said that if you have had a bad mother on earth, then you need to create for yourself a celestial mother where this mother is completely loving and completely kind, and she's always there for you, and that will help you to feel better. It will provide some emotional, you know, uh, health for you. She had to create, because she's an atheist, she had to create imaginary God that would be there in a relationship with her. But Mary knew, I have a father like this. And so I don't just have an insecure relationship. I have a secure relationship through the gospel of Jesus. Second thing, anxious service. So religious transaction is anxious service. It's quick to criticize. Judas was just real quick on that to say, that's wasteful. You shouldn't be doing that. But Mary has this happy service. You don't even see Mary retorting. We don't hear what she said. Jesus defended her. So there's this sort of happy overflow that's not anxious about what you're going to get in return. Finally, um, religious transaction works on draws, and, and Don and contractors will understand this. You do a little work and you get a little draw, right? If you've got a big job, you do a little draw. Judas wasn't getting his draws, and he had seen, I've, I'm, I'm past now two, three draws, and I expected more, so I'm just going to cut my losses. Gospel transformation said, he's already paid it all for me. So I don't need him to do anything more for me because he's already done it all for me on the cross. So if you are living in this relationship with God where you say, he hasn't done this for me and he hasn't showed up in this area for me, you're living in a transactional relationship with God where you haven't really deeply received the gospel to say he has already done it all for you. I really love telling that lady at Harbor Freight, He's already blessed me so much, I can't handle what he's done now. I don't need him to pay me back for this one. I was just saying that in Christ, we are so blessed that we don't need him to come through for this job or this project or this relationship for me to be 
happy with him. He has done it all, and I'm overflowing. That's the gospel transformation that happens. So, in my opening illustration, I said that I grew up in a mentality of scarcity. I grew up in a mentality that says there's not much money, don't spend it. What transformed me, and I'm not saying that I am now a person that just throws money around everywhere, but what I did have to realize was I lived in that mentality of scarcity well beyond the scarcity. When I didn't want to buy an extra drink or a whole meal at that restaurant, Jillian can tell you I had enough money in the bank to buy myself a meal, but I was still living with that old mentality of scarcity. What it took from me was a relationship to learn how to enjoy life and to understand that God has already so abundantly blessed me, I don't have to worry if I'm going to eat tomorrow. That I can just treat my wife and myself to a meal, and it's okay. And I, told, I took Jillian um, for a couple days for her anniversary this week, and I told her that she has brought life to me, because I, and this is one of the ways, because she taught me how to live in the abundance of God. So we talked about um, Mary's alabaster flask and the real alabaster flask. I would like to speak lastly about your alabaster flask. Now, PTSD warning for those who have been in churches where pastors have tried to manipulate you to give your, the last alabaster flask that you have because the church has a building project. And now that means that you should do it. I want to share with you that there are transactional motivations that we are susceptible to when we hear about this woman's flask. Here are a couple of them. We tend to go one of two directions. We hear about her doing this and we feel immediately guilty because we have equity in our house or because we have a balance in our bank account. So when we respond like that, it's still transactional. We have, we're living in fear that God will not love me if I don't do this for him. I have to give the last cent of what I have like Mary did. And we do it joylessly based out of fear. And we're easily manipulated by pushy religious leaders who want to tell us that if you don't do this, then you are stealing from God. This is not the purpose of Mary's flask, to make everybody else immediately come and try to outdo her by dumping their flask on Jesus. That was not the purpose. We also have a tendency to, with pride, respond and say, so this is how you get remembered. Look at what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, everywhere the gospel is preached, this woman will be mentioned. Very interesting that Mark didn't actually tell us her name at all. Because it's not about Mary or her flask. It's about Jesus. And so, in our pride, we, how can we know if we're proud and we're pouring out our flask, basically, to get attention? As we're very sensitive to being criticized, we're very sensitive to being mentioned or remembered, and we can't take correction. Or we're jealous of other people who get attention because they poured out their flask. Ananias and Sapphira, for example, in Acts chapter 5 comes to mind. But what is gospel motivation? I want to give you this simple sentence here. Gospel motivation is this. My alabaster flask is all of myself poured out every day in glad thanksgiving upon my Lord and Savior. Romans 12.1 gives us a New Testament way to understand our appropriate response to the gospel. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Everything you are and have 
is your alabaster flask that should be daily poured out on Jesus. I think of a few illustrations, um, and you know it's, uh, Hans and Lindsay could tell us better, but I was researching this this week. Christian parents are more than three times as likely to participate in fostering and adoption than unbelieving parents in the United States. I read that this week. I don't know if you've seen similar numbers. We had a brother visiting us from Cincinnati last week, and he's adopted numerous children. And he told me in the space in Cincinnati where it is, it's almost completely dominated by Christian families that they're, they're fostering and adopting. And what does that tell me? That tells me people motivated by the gospel face this thing of children without homes and say, I have a flask. I have this life I can pour out for Jesus on these children. We sent some people to the to mission field. That's one way that you could be, that if the Lord motive, puts that on your heart, if it's the right time and you're the right person to do that, to break your flask and say, I'm going, even though other people say it's wasteful. In the daily service of loving your children as mothers and caring for them in the name of Jesus and filling up their lives with the love and kindness of God is your breaking of your alabaster flask daily for Jesus. And for those who serve in this church, I, was, I texted you all yesterday, if you're part of the CCC family group, which if you're not, please see Britta. She can add you to that. And I said, I just saw people serving everywhere last Sunday, giving of themselves and just serving and just all over this building and pouring out their alabaster flask for Jesus. So I would say um, this in closing is receive experience and pour out. First of all, if you've not received Jesus, then you can't know the repair of life in him. So receive him first. Tell him in this next song, we're going to sing a song, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them sing in ceaseless praise. Receive the Lord and say, take my life today. If you've never done that, today is the day you give your life to Jesus. Secondly is to experience him. It takes time to let the Lord repair all of the brokenness that we have in our lives. We need to experience him deeply in his word and in community. So experience the gospel in this community and in his word daily. And lastly, pour out gospel love. Pour it out on your children, pour it out on your friends, pour it out on one another and in service to the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for the real alabaster flask, the body and blood of Jesus. And as we come to this table to take of it, we are reminded that the totally appropriate, non-wasteful response to your pouring out of your blood and breaking of your body is for us to say, take my life, my moments, my days, all that I have, let us sing in ceaseless praise.